the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this Friday edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for ending your week with me. Uh, follow the show at danproftshow.com. You can get podcasts there as you can on uh, Spotify and iTunes for now till I get parlored. And uh, also on social media at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. A remarkable story yesterday uh, from the Capitol. Capitol Police Chief, Capitol building needs permanent wall. The infrastructure uh, around the Capitol needs to be made to include permanent fencing and the availability of ready backup forces in close proximity to the Capitol, according to Capitol Police Chief Yogananda Pittman. Uh, So I just want to understand the position of the uh, D.C. establishment. So no border wall on our southern border, no wall there to stop illegal immigrants, but a wall around the Capitol to keep, quote unquote, illegal Americans out. For more on all of this, we're pleased to be joined by Mark Morgan, former U.S. Customs and Border Protection Commissioner during the Trump administration. Mark, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me. It's always curious. I mean, we've had this discussion for years now. It's always curious where um, the uh, political class uh, does desire walls and protection and and where they don't. So uh, for them, yes. And for, you know, the unwashed masses, not so much. Yeah, Dan. You know, so that's why for a long time I've been saying this pure politics is absolutely politics and power being put in front of public safety because not only is clear you what you just represented the hypocrisy about the, the discussion about wall going around the capitol and i tell you before i had to, to move on I, I i wanted to mention that so much but i thought it'd be too pithy while i was still sitting you know as the acting commissioner cbp but now I, i'm freed a little bit to, to comment on that and you're absolutely right dan and let's go back even further let's go back to 2005 six cure fence act when then Senator Biden approved and voted for mm-hmm. the Secure Fence Act that resulted in 650 miles of wall being built, including into the first Obama, then Vice President Biden administration. So the hypocrisy is just unbelievable, and the American people and the voters need to do their homework and understand that hypocrisy. Uh, you also have come out and made some comments recently with respect to Biden administration actions at the southern border. The cancellation of three billion dollars or the really the default of three billion dollars worth of contracts for border wall uh, construction funding the the vendors that were retained to do the border wall construction um, that may cost American taxpayers some seven hundred million dollars to get out of those contracts. And uh, also the um, reversal on the remain in Mexico program for those uh, individuals or caravans, depending on the form that they try to, to breach our border may uh, uh, try to uh, seek asylum in this country. Yeah, Dan, those are two key critical points. First of all, 
Right now, there's about 27, 30 contractors that are building the wall system right now. For anybody to say that they know exactly how much it's going to cost, they don't understand the system. So the government can cancel contracts called termination for convenience. But what, what they have to do then is enter into a settlement agreement separately, which each one of those 27 to 30 contractors, they have to pay them for performance performed up until that date. They have to pay them for materials they've already uh, purchased or manufactured. There's 270,000 tons of steel ballast that's been manufactured but haven't been installed. They're going to have to pay them for that and get this. Then they're going to have to pay them more money to either destroy it or store it. There's going to be some areas where they dug a trench, put rebar in, and now they're going to have to pay them additional money to pull the rebar out, build the trench back in. So the cost to the taxpayer, and, and they will end up getting nothing, will actually be billions of dollars. And then let's not uh, forget the fact that it's going to cost about 5,000 jobs to stop building the wall system along the southwest border. And then real quick, NPP, you're right, huge. One of the, 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 the most uh, uh, significant policies that the Trump administration gave us to secure our borders, it's what ended catch and release and was uh, instrumental in driving the illegal flow down by 75% by February 2020. And the MPP is that Migrant Protection Protocol. That's the Remain in Mexico program, right? Yeah, that's absolutely right, Dan. And that was the single thing because that was one of the significant loopholes. They knew in the past that if you get to our border, we were going to let you in. You were going to be released into the interior of the United States and never to be heard from again. And at some point, given DACA and then apparently amnesty now. And so the incentives were very strong. But we closed that loophole down. And so now they knew that once they got here, we weren't going to let them into the interior of the United States. They're going to have to wait in Mexico while they go through the due process. That by itself is what was one of the most significant things to end the illegal immigration flow from the uh, Northern Triangle countries, the families in UACs. And now President Biden has taken that away. And what I keep saying is you add in everything else, the amnesty, the expansion of DACA, the stop deportation, the priority of apprehensions, the reduction of bed space for ICE, go on and on and on. But that's not an immigration strategy. That's an open border strategy. And the human smugglers and the cartels and the migrants themselves know, and that's why they're coming. Yeah, speaking of the cartels, there were some reports that the cartels now are sort of staging in Tucson or on the Mexico side of Tucson where there has not been uh, renewed border wall construction. Is, is, that, is that accurate? So, so we're seeing that really all along. So, so the cartels, human smugglers, they always change and adapt their TTPs, their, their techniques, tactics, and procedures that we call it, to really give them the advantage, not us. The wall was one thing that gave uh, put the advantage back on us. We were able to shape their behaviors instead of the other way around. Mm-hmm. Now you've taken a significant tool. So now they have the advantage. So now they're looking all along the southwest border where the weak spots are, where the greatest opportunity to get people across so they can line their bank accounts and exploit the migrants and exploit our loopholes and, and our sovereign nation. That's what we're seeing right now. And you already see the sort of caravans, right? We called it. We anticipated. We knew this was going to happen. And, and don't take my word for it. Listen to the migrants themselves. Quote, President Biden gave us 100 days to get to the U.S. border. Right. Yeah. That's all you need to hear right now. Well, I mean, it's one of those things. Look, uh, you know, we're we're all human beings and we all respond to incentives. And when you when the president of the United States sends out that message that you're you got a hundred day window to get here. I mean, it would just be like, you know, I got a hundred I got uh, this much time to. uh, you know, file my uh, paperwork for a student loan. I got this much time to get this benefit or that benefit. Of course, people are going to respond to that. That are looking for that benefit, like coming to this country. Right. If you gave the same thing, say you had 100 days to file paperwork, and your student loans would be forgiven. 
Yeah, right, right, right. yeah. It's going to be scrambling, right, to get that done. And that's exactly right. And that's why when we talk about this, you have to take a look at the totality of what the Biden administration is doing right now, not just one thing. And so so think about it right now. So they're encouraging people to come to the border illegally, cross illegally. Once you get here, you will be released. You won't be detained. You'll be released into the interior United States. You'll be protected from lawful deportation. And once you stay here illegally, you'll be given significant rewards like expansion of DACA, uh, free health care and amnesty. Two, 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 two things on that, because there's so much back and forth about statistics. One of the questions, if you could settle this for us, you know, what percentage of people who are released into this country, you know, pending their asylum hearing actually show up for their hearing? Because the sides argue about how, what percentage that is, if that's a significant problem or if it's not a significant problem. And secondly, is there any background checking that goes on in terms of prior convictions for crimes, violent crimes? before somebody's released into the interior of the country appending their asylum hearing. Yeah, so on the latter, yes, but 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 now because of the White House drift DHS memo that that puts all that into question with respect to the criminal activity. I'll talk about that real quick in a second. But yes, and, and, and the stats, of course, the open border advocates, right, love to twist the stats because there's two different stats, right? There, there's one stat that people show up for their initial hearing, right? And then others will go so some don't even show up for their initial hearing, right? And so they get an order of removal and abstention. There are some that show up for a couple of hearings and then and then uh, fall off. And then there are some that go through and they'll attend the hearings, get a final order of removal. But what they don't do is honor the removal. So that's why we say, you know, we're, we're anywhere between 85 to 90 percent of those people that go through the entire due process eventually do not honor that. They either simply just don't show up at all are those that do show up and get a final order of removal, they don't honor it and they still stay here illegally, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and, and then the background checking, uh, why, why that's now in, called into yeah. question? Yeah, yeah but because right now, so, so they, they've gone back to the uh, President Obama, Vice President Biden, uh, a priority for ICE on who they can go and, and apprehend. And it's also who they can remove right now. So if you look at the language, it says you have to be convicted of an aggravated felon. That's key, both the word conviction and aggravated felon. So let me give you listeners a quick example. The ICE could, could know that there's a, a known gang member here illegally, and they could know it through other investigative activity, right? So they, they could have a name of somebody, know he's a gang member, and that gang member could be charged with an aggravated felon, but he cannot be removed because he wasn't convicted of an aggravated felon. How is that not outrageous right. in anybody's perspective? Very helpful to uh, elucidate all of these uh, complicated topics. Mark Morgan, former U.S. Customs and Border Protection Commissioner during the Trump administration. Uh, Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate uh, the help in understanding this. Anytime, Dan. Uh, coming up after the break, we're going to talk to the American conservatives, Kurt Mills, about uh, the Senate filibuster. Don't don't uh, be so excited about uh, what Manchin and Cinema had to say this week. And then at the bottom of the hour, CNBC contributor Jim Urio on the Reddit Renegade. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. President Biden's press secretary, Jen Psaki, yesterday explaining how Joe Biden's previous statements about executive orders being the uh, indicia of a dictator does not apply to him. And the president also said during an interview with columnists uh, back in December that he didn't think executive action should be used for everything. And that certainly is his point of view. But there are steps, including overturning some of the harmful, detrimental and, yes, immoral actions of the prior administration that he felt he could not wait to to overturn. And that's exactly what he did. Now, any historian will tell you that he walked into the presidency at one of the most difficult moments in history that required additional executive action in order to take get immediate relief to the American people. Immediate relief to the American people. Yeah, it was heroic, the action he needed to take. He was under pressure. There's a sense of urgency. We have got to let men compete with women in girls' sports. That was a moral imperative, as was disbanding the 1776 Commission, uh, eliminating uh, 11,000 or so jobs on the Keystone XL pipeline. I mean, these are things that cannot wait. For more on uh, Biden's week one, we're pleased to be joined by Kurt Mills, senior reporter at the American Conservative. Kurt, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey. So uh, the uh, moral imperatives that uh, Joe Biden has pursued in week one, uh, certainly uh, serving to keep uh, the uh, Marxist base of the party happy, I would think. Yeah. I mean, look, you just played Jen Psaki there. And look, uh, she's real comms and she knows how to do the messaging for her boss, but obviously there are some contradictions and uh, convulsions in trying to do this much action, and especially when they castigated the previous administration for doing the same thing. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the central dynamic of the administration remains that Biden has this centrist image and this sort of centrist legacy, and he's sort of trying to pitch himself as this national father figure, and he may yet be successful, um, but underneath him, uh, especially, you know, as you get down to the mid-level of, of the sort of Biden apparatus, is it is it is quite progressive or quite leftist or whatever you want to call it, and you know he's going to be continually pressured to do that, especially with the impression that you know he's he's kind of yesterday's man, but he's not. He's the president now. And so, uh, what is the Republican response to uh, this flurry of activity? I mean, one of the one of the ways that you prevent anybody from making sort of an organized case against anything specific you're doing is do 42 things at once, which has sort of been the first week. And Republicans struggle to make uh, arguments on policy as it uh, particularly cultural issues, moral issues uh, as sort of a matter of course. So the Republicans race on Detra at present is what? Yeah, I think it's, there's a couple of things going on. Uh, number one, uh, they have now functionally moved the largest distraction from them to counteract Biden's agenda, which is that the president's not going to be convicted in this trial. This is not something that I anticipated or, or that most people knew about going into this week, but Rand Paul's motion to, to call, Senator Rand Paul's motion to call the, the trial itself unconstitutional, got 45 Republican votes. They would have needed at least 17 Republican votes to convict. Uh, very, very difficult to see how anyone could vote to say the trial is unconstitutional, um, but then vote to convict and say trial. So Trump's not going to be barred from office, which is the end of a major distraction. And the president himself, Biden, has said that basically the procedure is DOA. Beyond that, um, I think Biden potentially risks uh, the repeats, particularly of not only the, the President Trump, but the previous two Democratic presidents, uh, Clinton and uh, Barack Obama, 
which is they tried to do too much and they sort of exhausted a lot of political capital and didn't get much done. If you recall, Clinton didn't get health care done. Obama just got it done. And, you know, Trump had all these plans, too. And he only got tax reform done that, that first year there. So he uh, met with Kevin McCarthy uh, the other day, a picture circulated, and uh, and one wonders so where things stand within the caucuses, again, trying to get to wh- what is going to be the Republican Party's approach beyond uh, this uh, show trial for the the Biden presidency. That seems unclear to me, and in part it's it's unclear because there seems to be some decision-making that needs to be made internally about the future of people like Liz Cheney and leadership, about how uh, those who voted to impeach the president, the 10 members of the House, uh, maybe the five members of the Senate who would vote to impeach him, Republicans, how they're going to be handled with it in caucus as Democrats continue to try to prop up Trump as, a, as, you know, as their bete noir and, and Republicans and put Republicans in the posture of defending them rather than going after the Biden administration. Yeah, I, I say two things to that. Uh, first, McCarthy is, you know, a very interesting figure all of a sudden. Um, you know, this is somebody who could very well be the speaker of the House. It's also very important that he's, uh, if he's from California and the Republicans are trying to make a plausible play to at least damage Gavin Newsom, if not take him out to the governor's mansion next year. Um, and McCarthy sort of has to straddle this line of, of obviously moving the party forward. Um, but, you know, a lot of people who, especially Republicans who stayed with the party in California, still like Donald Trump. Um, I think from there, uh, though, uh, it, it's obviously, politically at least, and there's going to be, you know, unwelcome news to, you know, a lot of sort of <clears throat> more progressive or, pe- or people that were just absolutely, as we all were, but, you know, pretty frothing mad about about the Capitol Hill riots. Um, I, I think that, uh, that the, the prospect of, of a sort of like the GOP cleanly being done with Trump and removing him, uh, we're convicting him. It's basically DOA, as I mentioned. And when when the House voted to, to oh, I, I, oh, oh, I know that's DOA. That, that, that's yeah. that's not a question. The question is what happens to uh, in office the Adam Kinzingers and yeah. Liz Cheney's yeah. of the world, and out of office the David Frenches and Jonah Goldbergs of the world. Because now I, I we're, we're talking about the party for, and the movement. Right, right, right. When they voted to do that. There was there was considerable hope that McConnell would join and actually try to uh, convict Trump. That's not going to happen, and so this has really turned on them. Um, and so it is basically implausible now that Cheney can become speaker. I mean, at least at this moment. And so this is a this is a real problematic moment for them in, in terms of their their intellectual defenders um, outside of you know office. Um, I mean, I've I've always been very 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 bearish on the on the future of Never Trump. Uh, one, one thing, too, there's been a lot of ink uh, spilled over uh, Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema, the uh, the uh, vanguards of the continued existence of the republic, to, to hear some of the commentary. It's a little bit overheated for me um, because they have come out against the filibuster, uh, although Kim Strassel makes an excellent point, as she usually does in The Wall Street Journal. Oh, it's not just the filibuster you have to worry about. It's also the expansion of the bird rule that allows for senators to pass things through simple majority by simple majority through this process called reconciliation. And right. look, this was used by Republicans in the past, as she points out. Ted Cruz tried to expand reconciliation to non-economic issues with respect to Obamacare in 2017. And so until you hear Cinema and Manchin or perhaps others say, not only am I not going to nuke the filibuster, I'm not going to nuke the bird rule, then you still have the prospect of them trying to move Marxism through the Senate by simple majority. 
Yeah, I mean, we don't have a clean resolution on this. Um, I, I, I tend to think that they're going to be under considerable pressure to eventually do this. But Kristen Cinema out of out of Arizona um, is is really uh, a stick in their crawl right now. As is Manchin, who is obviously um, far more afraid of his his right flank in West Virginia than his left flank. Um, you know, it's an overwhelmingly it's, it's the most Republican state in the country, depending on what metric you prefer. Um, and so, yeah, but I, I do think that, you know, that the temptations of the administration, for the Senate to, to get to a clean 50 vote or 51 votes, whatever they can, is going to remain. Uh, it's just it's just unclear exactly the path. As you mentioned, there's, there's, there's you know, there's, there's multiple ways to get to the end of that river. He is Kurt Mills, senior reporter at the American Conservative, theamericanconservative.com. Kurt, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Cheers. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. This is the Dan Proft Show. I'm reliable, I'm a very good listener, and I'm extremely funny. On the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. First there was Brexit, then there was Trump, and now there's Reddit. And the uh, Reddit renegades who stuck it up the backside of some of the uh, richest hedge fund managers in the world. And um, that precipitated, of course, a reaction from said hedge fund managers who want to stay some of the richest people in the world. They interceded to shut down trading of GameStop yesterday and uh, Robinhood acquiesced. David Portnoy, Barstool Sports, who's also a day trader of sorts, uh, he was on with Tucker Carlson yesterday and he reacted thusly to, uh, well... Stopping the vote counting in the middle of the election, so to speak. When I saw what Robin Hood was doing, ironically, Robin Hood take from, you know, take from the rich and give to the poor, even though they do the exact (laughs) opposite. I was stunned. Uh, I think it's criminal. I think there has to be an investigation. I think people have to go to jail. Whether that actually happens, I don't know. But I've never been more convinced about market manipulation and the people, the hedge funds controlling the game than today. I mean, just to wake up and say, hey. You can't trade these stocks anymore. You can only sell them. We are going to intentionally crash the market in these stocks. And everyone who has it, tough. You're going to lose a ton of money. But we're going to save the rich people in the hedge funds. Shocking. Like in 20 years of me doing Barstool, I'm not exaggerating. It's the most shocked I've been. And maybe I shouldn't be. But when you have AOC and Donald Trump Jr. both on the same side of an issue, you know something's dramatically wrong. Apparently, it's real for them. And and I love the lectures. You hear it from the hedge funds and the suits, as I call them. But they'll say they're protecting you and we're protecting you versus yourself. And people don't understand the risk and margin. And then you look at them. It's like, buddy, look in the mirror. You're doing the same thing. The hedge funds are betting against companies. We're betting on them with money and margin. We're doing the same thing. The only difference is we're winning and you're getting your teeth kicked in. And you just said, time out. We're changing the rules. And it's bananas. And uh what David Portnoy described is exactly the statement that uh, Vlad Tenev, the CEO of Robinhood, made on CNBC, which, as Chris Arnotti told us yesterday, CNBC is Wall Street's Reddit. So uh, Tenev went to safe haven, uh, CNBC, and the insufferable Andrew Ross Sorkin to spin his propaganda. We understand our customers are upset. We're doing what we can to re-enable buying in these names. And we stand with our customers. We stand for 
the everyday investor. And we do believe that you should be able to buy and sell the stocks that uh, that you want to, uh, subject to all requirements. And that's what we're going to, that's what we're working day in and day out to make possible. Subject to what requirements as they change midstream. Here are the rules. We don't like the outcome. We change the rules. They call that being subject to the requirements. That's not exactly the common understanding of fair play. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by somebody who knows more about this than we do, which is always helpful. That's what we try to do on this show. He is CNBC contributor Jim Urio. Jim, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So, um, hey, all uh, Robin Hood is trying to do is protect the little guy, Jim. Sure, of course they are. That's so sweet of them, too. And I heard that on, on many different media outlets last night about how there needs to be something done to protect the little guy. This is an odd time to protect the little guy when he was actually winning. Yes, I do think that this was going down badly if it was left to its own devices, which it should be left to its own devices. But that's the way people in their 20s and 30s understand about what risk is. Nobody was understanding what risk is. To put a fine point on something real quick, when they said that we're not accepting any buy orders, just sell orders. Now, people who aren't traders and aren't in the market think about, well, then people who have it are the only ones who sell it. No, even someone like me, who the last thing in the world I wanted to do was participate in any of this, the moment I read not accepting um, buy orders, only accepting sell orders, that guys like me flip it up to think, okay, let's sell it ahead of everybody else because it's perfectly legal to do that. If the only orders that come in are sell orders, then we know which direction it can only go. Right. So to me, again, if you went a month ago and tried to sell this story to Hollywood that an app that was literally called Robinhood and they were going to, these ragtag band of rebels were going to meet in the forest of Reddit and organize an uprising against the establishment, I don't even think they'd believe it. This is a fabulously captivating story for everybody who's listening to it. I got calls from people all day yesterday just because people love this story. Well, so there was there's rumors that abound, as I'm sure you're well aware of, that include that uh, those hedge funds, particularly those that bailed out. So Griffin and, and Cohen that bailed out uh, Melvin Capital, uh, maybe reloaded their shorts before they told Robinhood to stop trading. If that happened. Wow. You know, I'm not saying that it did happen, but I think me that- neither. But, but that's an example of something that would be criminal. That's an example of something that would be so, in my opinion, they should be sharing a cell with Bernie Madoff if something like that happened. And again, I'm not saying it did. It's amazing. It's just, you know, people think that white collar crime is somehow different than holding someone up at gunpoint. And to me, if something like that happened uh, for anybody, I think that it should be treated harshly. When we come back with uh, CNBC contributor Jim Urio, let's talk a little bit more about uh, Robin Hood and who its real customers are, as opposed to those suggested by their CEO. More with CNBC contributor Jim Urio right after this. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're talking uh, about the Reddit Redigades uh, with uh, CNBC contributor Jim Urio. And I want to talk about some of the defenses that are being offered for Robin Hood's action to stop trading on GameStop, who my understanding is Citadel is their biggest revenue source. They're 606, as Zero Hedge reported, Citadel, Virtu, G1X, Wolverine, countless hedge funds, which are tightly interwoven into the fabric of the market. So what people I don't think appreciated until this all broke apart is that Robinhood's customer isn't the little guy investor. That's actually their product. 
they sell the data to the big hedge funds. They sell the data of their individual investors to the hedge funds. I think that's important that people understand that. And I think all I can do is underscore the point you just made. That's just a ruse. Obviously, they have to make money somewhere. If they're not charging you, they have a customer somewhere else and someone is paying for the order flow. So that's unbelievable. I hope that all I want is for every new generation to have a healthy amount of mistrust. And things like this have to happen. You can't really trust these sort of things. You have to understand that sometimes the system is, is rigged against you, and you have to figure out how to circumvent that. Sometimes. And I think that that's not a bad thing. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you've got to blow up an account to understand that people aren't on your side. Right. I mean, it's sort of like, uh, you know, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. If you're not rigging the system, then you're the one getting rigged. I mean, that's no, sort no, of the, the, the handle. It was the, right. It was the movie Rounders about the line about if you're sitting at the poker table and in a half hour you haven't identified the sucker, then you are the sucker. Correct. I thought that was very funny. Well, so I want to, I also want to get your handle on how bad this could have been had there not been this uh, extraordinary intercession. Again, going back to Zero Hedge, according to financial data analytics firm Ortex, short sellers, mostly hedge funds, sitting on an estimated losses of $70.87 billion from their short positions in U.S. companies just in calendar year 2021 alone. And so had not Robinhood did what it did, what could have occurred yesterday? Well, of course, any time you start to see disruption, particularly in hedge funds that have a lot of positions in other markets, when they have to start liquidating those positions to cover margins and others, it has a um, definite communicable effect through other markets. And it's bad. And it could be something that drags us in to a bit of a, a market malaise. It's let to go to you know, what I consider a natural end. And that's fine. You know, people don't assess risk properly over time periods. And then all of a sudden, everyone needs to be slapped in the face and reminded that risk exists. It's not a bad thing long term. I'll make the argument that it's a good thing long term. But yeah, it could be nasty. I think a lot of the, um, the weakness we're seeing in equities in the broader market over the last couple of days is just the market doesn't like dislocation. There's something else I'd like to add to this too. The government sits back weeping and, and whimpering and clutching their pearls. But the reality of it is this. The government themselves has injected $4 trillion into the system over the last year, put a whole class of intelligent college graduates out of work, and then they're surprised when the money starts to show up in weird, wild ways. You can't predict where it's going to pop up. And this is just absolutely a symptom of bad policy. I wanted to get your reaction to something that the White House press Secretary Jen Psaki had to say yesterday about um, questions regarding Janet Yellen, uh, now the Treasury Secretary, first female Treasury Secretary, in case you hadn't heard, that uh, her $500,000 or so in, in speaking fees to big banks, including Citadel and big hedge funds, including Citadel, what that really meant is, is that does it mean she needs to recuse herself from any oversight or commentary about uh, what has transpired between Robin Hood and Reddit and the big hedge funds. This is Pisaki. Yesterday, uh, the, the Treasury Secretary is monitoring the situation and she's kind of uh, on top of it. There have been um, some kind of concerns about her uh, previous engagements with Citadel and speaking fees that she has received from Citadel. Are there any plans to have her recuse herself from advising the president on uh, GameStop and the whole Robin Hood situation? Well, just to be clear, what I said was that we have the Treasury Secretary is now confirmed. Obviously, we have a broad economic team. Uh, the SEC put out a statement uh, yesterday that I referred to, but I don't think I have anything more for you on it other than to say 
separate from the GameStop issue, the Secretary of Treasury is one of the world-renowned experts on markets, on the economy. Uh, it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone she was uh, paid to uh, give her perspective and advice before she came into office. Jim, is that why uh, Citadel and Goldman Sachs pay Janet Yellen like they used to pay Hillary Clinton is for her advice? Sure it is, yeah. Of course, there are these unbelievable market experts who've taken their market expertise into the public sector instead of staying out into the, in the real world making money. It's absurd. And again, we mentioned the word mistrust a couple minutes ago. This kind of thing, I want it to be plastered over every newspaper. I want everyone to know this and get a healthy mistrust of the establishment. Um, we just talked about who Robinhood's clients really were, Citadel. And the government, oftentimes you can find you know these relationships there as well. So you wonder who's protecting who. At the end of the day, the for the little guys, sometimes nobody. Uh, I wanted to get uh, one other actor into this conversation in a little bit more pronounced fashion because everybody's piling on the hedge fund billionaires because it's easy to do. But with government policy, uh, Peter Earle, who's an economist over at the American Institute for Economic Research, uh, writing that it's been governments levy destructive policies on their economies, wrecking hundreds of thousands of business, sending hundreds of millions worldwide into unemployment. Central bankers and state treasuries then pulled out all the stops to attempt to slow the onset of a huge artificial depression. And as the facts regarding the disease became clear, politicians were unwilling to change their direction. And so what do you have? You have investors searching for yield because you have the Fed holding interest rates at zero and they're moving into commodities, real estate, junk bonds, foreign currencies, stocks. So the externalities that were have been created by government policies, as you were sort of talking about with the college kids with a little bit of cash on the sidelines, where's that money going to appear? You know, it's in part government policy that is driving some of this uh, uh, speculative uh, trading and, and uh, perhaps uh, injudicious risk taking. I'm not just saying that it's a couple college kids with a with a little bit of extra cash. I'm, I'm talking about them injecting massive amounts of money into the economy and keeping interest rates at zero basically across the yield curve. That creates absolute thirst and keeps people walking out the risk spectrum further and further. This is the bubble bust creation cycle that we've been in over the last 25 years by a, by a overactive government and a, you know proactive Federal Reserve. This is it's outrageous and it will continue to happen unless they understand that they're causing the problem. Spoiler alert, they're not going to understand that they're causing the problem because it's so much easier to blame somebody else. But yes, they're creating speculative bubbles. It shows up in weird places. I would not have predicted that it's going to show up in a brick and mortar. Uh, I don't even know what GameStop does. And by the way, I don't care what GameStop does (laughs) because it's completely immaterial. But I have a feeling they're not Apple. Yeah. All right. Good comment. He is Jim Urio, CNBC contributor and restaurateur. Jim Urio, thanks so much for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Welcome back to the show. I wanted to follow up a conversation we had with Jim Urio, an alternative theory about what happened that uh, paints uh, the hedge fund hegemons in uh, a more positive light. Here's one theory from a math guy on Twitter that, that actually I ran by Urio. So stay tuned for Urio's response. But Silent Cal is his handle. He uh, 
says the story is in Ken Griffin called Janet Yellen, who instructed the DTCC, which is the Depository Trust and Clearing Corp., to raise margin on Robinhood to force them to shut down the speculative buying. Robinhood's a broker. They don't execute stock orders themselves. They sign up customers, route their orders to executing brokers, keep track of who owns what. Robinhood is also a clearing broker, so they directly settle and uh, custody their client securities. Yes, Robinhood is paid by Citadel to handle executing some of its order flow. This isn't as nefarious as it sounds. Citadel Equity Securities is paying to execute retail orders because they aren't pernicious, like having 500 times the size behind them. Robinhood customers buy and sell stocks. Those trades don't settle, meaning closing the exchange of cash for security, until uh, two days later, depending on the, the net of buys and sells. So Robinhood is on the hook to pay and receive that net cash. That's credit risk. Uh, the NSCC is the entity that takes the credit risk. It matches up the net buyers and sellers post-trade and handles the exchange of cash for security. To mitigate the credit risk that one of the clearing brokers fails, they demand the brokers post a clearing deposit with them. And so this was the question of whether there may have been a liquidity event. But flip side is that Vlad Tenev, the CEO of Robinhood, said there was no cash crunch on the Robinhood side or liquidity crunch on the Robinhood side. But okay, let's continue with Silent Cal. The NSCC is required to do this by SEC rule tracing to Dodd-Frank. Everyone posts, and if a broker fails, then the NSCC, National Security and Clearing Corp., I should mention, takes any losses out of the broker's deposit, then some from NSCC, then from everyone else. This is a post-crisis idea encoded in Dodd-Frank that that, uh, making everyone post collateral reduces the credit risk and systemic risk and such. So uh, then he goes through how the NSCC uh, clearing deposit gets calculated and so forth. Um, So... Perhaps there was a not it was not as nefarious as possible. Look, I'm not an expert in this space, which is why we lean on experts. Um, I can read the law and I can get a handle on, you know, uh, the top line of what a short squeeze is and watching the hedge fund short squeezers get short squeezed. But, um, you know, this is the level this level of detail from Silent Cal is beyond my kin. Uh, But uh, I went back to Jim Urio with this and he said of this theory I think it's plausible, but I also think it would be what they uh, what the official story would be, regardless of what the actual story is. So it's a plausible alternative theory. Fine. We don't know. That's why we're raising it, hashing it out back to you. That's why the key element of the story is if the hedge fund reset their shorts prior to the restrictions. The uh, crime could also go the other way, meaning that if Robin Hood was going to restrict based on those reasons, which are fair, would anyone have been tipped off? So that may be what happened as Silent Cal outlines it. But it doesn't mean that uh, the questions uh, that uh, need answers have been sufficiently answered yet. And I think Jim Urio raised the question about whether there was essentially collusive behavior between any of the hedge funds and Robinhood. And um, the public needs an answer to that question. This is Dan Brock. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. And uh, um, I should make mention that you can follow us danproftshow.com. You get podcasts there as you can on Spotify and iTunes. And on social media at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show, Michael Warren Davis uh, writing over at uh, theamericanconservative.com 
says Republicans have a death drive, an unconscious yet irresistible tendency towards self-destruction, and they have it bad. What does he mean by that exactly? Well, let's explore. Michael Warren Davis, former editor of Crisis Magazine, author of the forthcoming The Reactionary Mind, joins us now. M.W. Davis, thanks for being with us again. Appreciate it. Oh, you keep having me back on. It's a, it's a great act of charity, and I'm, I'm grateful for it. <laughs> well, I'm a little concerned about you, actually, because you're invoking Freud, and um, and, and that <laughs> makes me think you may have the death drive you're describing. <laughs> I studied psychoanalysis in college, so I have all of this uh, Freudian junk in, stuck in my brain, and I have to use it sometimes, or <laughs> I can't justify the huge tuition bill. So I, I agree <laughs> that Republicans have a bit of this death drive that you're describing, but perhaps not in um, the same way that you do. Uh, I'll let you start. Describe what you mean. Yeah, well, uh, as I mentioned in the article, um, you know, the voter fraud thing is really nothing new. Uh, in 2012, uh, Mitt Romney allegedly got zero votes in almost 60 precincts in, in Philadelphia, which is absolutely unbelievable. It's literally unbelievable. He, he, he certainly got at least one vote. Um, but no one really made a big deal about it in 2012. I was, I was kind of baffled. I worked for the Republican Party at the time. And, but, uh, but you know, Mitt Romney, the nice guy that he is, he refused to, he refused to talk about it. Um, the only person who actually mentioned it that I saw was David Frum, who now laughs at everyone who thinks that there was any uh, <laughs> any funny business in the 2020 election. But we'll let that sit. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, well, but, 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 but it was a, but it was a it was a different Republican Party. And Mitt Romney had a very different constituency, which is why Mitt Romney lost. Well, sure, that's that's certainly true. And it wasn't uh, you know, it, it, it wouldn't have swung the election in, in all fairness. Um but you would hope that a, a sense of justice, at the very least, a, a desire not to be defrauded, would have led conservatives to, to, to kick up at least a bit of a fit about it. But they didn't. So 2020 rolls around, and uh, and you know we, we see that there is at least you know substantial voter fraud. Again, we don't we don't know if it was enough to swing the election. Uh, the Trump campaign didn't make that case very well, um, but we know that there was lots of that there was a considerable amount of voter fraud. So as I say in the article, you know, it would have been the easiest thing in the world to just, you know, say that for Republicans to crack down and say, these are the, the states where we saw the, the most fraud happen. Um, we see that, uh, that you know, for instance, mail-in ballots uh, were, you know, were facilitating uh, fraudulent, uh, fraudulent votes more than in-person voting. So we need to change the system. We need to pass laws, both at the federal and the state level, um, that will prevent anything like this of this sort happening ever again. Um, that would have been, again, very easy, very sensible. Um, but of course, that's not what conservatives did. They immediately um, flooded to, you know, Sidney Powell and Lynn Wood with their insane conspiracy theories about, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton and George Soros teaming up with Xi Jinping and and the ghost of Hugo Chavez to to rig Dominion voting systems. It was it, not only was it yeah. unnecessary, it was totally counterproductive, and it really I'm sure that it set the anti fraud movement back another four to eight years at least. Well, you know, I, I look, I, I agree with a, a lot of that actually, and I also agree with your description of uh, the Kelly Loeffler Senate race, which is like a classic case of. Uh, how not to win an election in terms of how she uh, tackled uh, Ralph Warnock. I mean, because you know, Kelly Loeffler, 
I, she, I'm sure she's a perfectly nice person, but she was a cardboard cutout human as a candidate, which we see a lot in Republican ranks. You know, the matter, the quality of the candidate matters, too, that that was, has been lost in the postmortem on Georgia. But something else, though, that I think uh, why Republicans have a bit of a death drive and we're seeing it play out right now doesn't mean they have to stay on this trajectory. But, you know, the flurry of executive orders that uh, Joe Biden issued, one that has gotten almost no attention from Republicans other than in a pro forma way is Biden ending up the policy that prohibits federal funds from going to foreign aid groups that perform abortions or provide other related services. This is something that uh, President Trump moved on. 200 House Republicans signed on to a pledge to oppose the budget bill that eliminates the Hyde Amendment, uh, a measure that pre- pre- prevents federal funding from being used on abortion services. So they they, they did their checkbox on their uh, their their rhetorical position of being pro-life. By the way, one of the 200 was not Adam Kinzinger, who voted to impeach President Trump. Uh, it was not Adam Kinzinger from Illinois, who is spending all his time uh, decrying uh, Marjor- uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene from Georgia because of her tweets and so forth. So, you know, the, the, the Republican death drive, I think we need to understand who is responsible for the current trajectory and what is the path uh, to change or, you know, what is the basis on which we change the trajectory? Because the Republican Party doesn't make arguments. Conservatives don't make arguments. They take positions. And that's a very different thing. Uh, and and you have uh, those who are uh, so, sort of learn none of the lessons from the Trump years, other than that he his personality was off putting that are you know spending all their time uh, focusing on uh, real or perceived enemies inside the perimeter. You know, on election night, uh, Senator Josh Hawley tweeted something to the effect of, um, you know, the Republican Party is a working class party now. That is our future. And he's right. I mean, to the extent that if the Republican Party has a future, it is as a working class party, meaning that it is a party that appeals to the needs of the working class. Um, If it doesn't do that, then there is no electoral future for the GOP. Uh, and from what we've seen, I mean, with, within a couple weeks of that tweet being sent out, you, you, put, you mentioned Kelly Loeffler. Um, she, within a couple of weeks, the half of, at least half of the GOP immediately forgot all the lessons of the Trump years and reverted to that old business class country club Romneyism. Uh, and and uh, it's very, it's totally unsurprising that not only did the, the GOP lose the rather significant gains that it made with uh, with with lower income and minority voters, um, but it you know it lost it lost crucial elections. Uh, it gave the Senate back to the Democrats, a totally unnecessary self goal. Uh, I I don't I, I don't know what to say beyond that. I, it it's it it has to be a death drive because there is nothing that would otherwise compel Republicans to go so far out of their way to lose elections, to lose the gains that they made in 2020. Maybe it is just a matter of of uh, somebody, people in leadership. I mean, that's, sort of, I guess, where you have to start, people that have the biggest platforms to say, um, we need to be held to account and hold ourselves to account for the positions we take. And that means going out and making the case for those positions to bring people along, to create a constituency for those issues. If this is just a, about a virtue signaling from a Republican or conservative ranks, then guess what? We are going to be on the losing end of that battle over who is the best at virtue signaling to constituencies. Yeah, I mean, the Republican Party is full of grifters. Um, Marco Rubio, I don't know if you remember this. It was such a it was such a blip. 
Um, a couple of years ago, he started writing these essays and first things and giving speeches at Catholic University. Common good capitalism. Right, exactly. Common good capitalism. And uh, everyone, you know, all the conservative pundits that sort of came of age during Trump and were part of this big, um, you know, working party thing, they, they all went nuts. They loved it. And they were, they were tweeting about how Marco Rubio was the future of the party, et cetera, et cetera. And then Mitch McConnell gave him a seat on the, uh, the Senate, the, the, he made him the head of the Intelligence Committee. And, uh, and then Marco Rubio forgot all about this commentary capitalism and just went back to being a, a party hack. Um, you know, I, I have, I still have pretty high hopes for Josh Hawley. I, I was baffled that he, uh, that he gave that fist pump to the, the rioters outside the Capitol. I thought that was a, a very bad move. But um, the, the the incredibly disproportionate response from the punditry, getting his book deal canceled, which was good for my publisher, Regbury, they picked it up. But getting his book <laughs> deal canceled, getting him kicked off of his platforms. Um, that was that was a gross overreaction, but I think that that's because if you know if if Trump if intellectual Trumpism I guess if if uh, if the if if serious policy driven principle based uh, populism nationalism whatever you want to call it if that has a future Josh Hawley has to be a part of it um, and so as the as the Republican field scrambles to to find a new leader uh, and Hawley kind of emerges as the, the I guess for now the best leader that we have for that populist traction. Um, of course, they were they were going to do everything they could to, to paint him as a fascist and, uh, and to shut him down. And, uh, and that's what we've seen. So we're stuck between the grifters um, like Rubio, the automatic reverts, the crypto Romneyites like Loeffler and Connell. And uh, and then the, the you know, the, I think the true believers who are, you know, who are going to be facing the biggest uphill battle of their lives over the next four years. He is Michael Warren Davis, former editor of Crisis Magazine, author of the forthcoming book, The Reactionary Mind. M.W. Davis, thanks so much for joining us again. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure, sir. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show and um on the occasion of this uh, report out yesterday on saint andrew of COVID 19 the general Dwight D. Eisenhower of the COVID-19 pandemic, right? Governor Andrew Cuomo, brother Alfredo, and uh, as delightful as those two have been, a uh, pretty damning report issued by the Democrat state attorney general in New York, Letitia James is her name, finding that um, the the underreporting of deaths in nursing homes in New York State could be as high as 50%. The Department of Health tally of 8,711 deaths could be pushed to more than 13,000 based on a survey of 62 nursing homes that found the state undercounted the fatalities there by an average of 56%. The report further notes that at least 4,000 residents died after the state issued a controversial March 25 Cuomo administration mandate for nursing homes to admit medically stable, quote-unquote, coronavirus patients, which James... Uh, writes in a report may have put residents at increased risk of harm in some facilities. Yeah. And he's uh, an international Emmy award winner, a uh, published author, uh, a um, savant when it comes to leadership in crisis. Is that right? Hmm. 
Well, that's how he has been branded, thanks to Fredo and his friends in the D.C. press corps. The flip side of that is Ron DeSantis, who's been vilified by those same members of that same press corps. And yet, what does the record reflect? The record reflects lower hospitalizations, deaths per capita in Florida than in New York State. The record reflects uh, Florida, the first state to vaccinate more than one million senior citizens. Right. The population responsible for the supermajority of deaths, you know, responsible in the sense of accounting for, obviously. Ron DeSantis was on with Maria Bartiroma last evening and for uh, lockdown states versus free states. Uh, for that discussion and for some perspective for those living in lockdown states. I just think it's it's nice to pull out a bit and hear what DeSantis had to say in terms of his approach from the beginning to the present. Compare and contrast the results, what we now understand to be true, or at least we should. Some of us willfully blind to that understanding, but we should, the evidence would suggest. Not to mention... Uh, Florida, seeing job growth, seeing population growth, and if you're not growing, you're dying, and New York dying as a state as well, like other lockdown states, Illinois, California, New Jersey, which Florida is doing better than all of, both in terms of the public health piece of it, as well as the economic health piece of it. And of course, here we understand the two are inextricably linked, DeSantis. I think we've done a couple things. One, we focus protection on elderly people rather than trying to shut the entire society down. So at the front end of the pandemic, uh, I barred hospitals from discharging COVID patients back into nursing homes. That was able to save a lot of lives on the front end. And now here on hopefully the back end of the pandemic, our approach to vaccination is putting seniors first. We're focusing on our 65 and up population. We've reported over 1.1 million seniors that have gotten a shot in the state of Florida. That's almost uh, 25% of our enormous 4.5 million uh, senior population. And so we think that that's really important. That's where the most risk is. We also, though, understood we have to have schools open. So every parent in Florida has a right to send their kid to in-person instruction, private, charter, public, you name it. And we also say everybody has a right to work. So government, local government can't shut you down. They can't prevent you from earning a living. They can't prevent businesses from operating. And the result has been, for example, in the month of December, our revenue to the state of Florida, and we have very low tax rates, was up $330 million over the estimated revenue. Uh, People are coming. uh, They want to do business here. They want to invest here. And I'll tell you, Maria, I I run into people that say, you know, I was working remotely in whatever state, the lockdown state, and the schools were closed. So I said, the heck with this. I'm moving to Florida. The quality of life's better, and I can send uh, my my kid to in-person instruction. And so, you know, I think that we've understood COVID's real. You focus on your elderly population, but you can't run your society into the ground. Kids need to be in school. People need to be able to earn a living. So DeSantis did uh, basically the converse of the lockdown states. Not to say that there were no safety protocols put in place, not to say that there isn't. I spent some time in Florida over the holidays in Naples and businesses, they wear masks and and this and that. And there's uh, steps being taken, but there's faith in the citizens to be responsible, the businesses to be responsible, to work together, to be sensible. 
and uh, not the acrimony you see in the lockdown states either. Uh, and, and, I, and, and, and by the way, again here, uh, Florida, with one and a half times the population, has suffered the same number of deaths as Illinois, my home state. Fewer than New York, which has uh, slightly less population. Uh, and also, I want to give just make sure you hear this because of the ongoing attempt to sort of politically assassinate Ron DeSantis by the D.C. press corps. The criticism that was sent his way by Jen Psaki in the Biden administration with respect to Florida's vaccinations, that they're only 50 uh, percent through their doses that have been so allocated. Uh, that's a bit misleading, as DeSantis explained. So what she said was they've only administered 54 percent. Well, what she didn't say is the ones that haven't been administered are going to be administered on schedule because it's the second doses for people. So the suggestion she was trying to make is Florida should just be giving away second doses to people uh, who aren't coming in for their second dose. Our elderly population wants to get the second dose. So you're going to see those second doses in Florida really spike uh, because people are scheduled for it. Uh, And just sort of a a more general comment, too, from DeSantis about uh, lockdown policies. I mean, nobody has been willing really to speak in such plain terms. Maybe Christy Nome would be the closest uh, uh, to to DeSantis on this score. I mean, just based on what we know, if you listen to the show, everything that we've run through, all of the studies, all of the experiences, the reality on the ground and comparing uh, the results state to state, depending uh, based on those that took a light touch like Florida versus those that used a heavy hand like all of the blue states that I've mentioned and we've talked about ad nauseum. I mean, what's the net net takeaway from lockdowns? Real clear. It didn't make any sense and we should never do it again. But what I came to understand with the evidence was lockdowns don't cure anything. Even putting aside the economy, lockdowns don't work. They haven't worked to stop the spread. As you say, a place like California has been the most locked down. They've had higher cases, mortality, and hospitalizations per capita than us over the last three months. Uh, and so it doesn't work. And so we understood that. Uh, we also wanted to trust people to make, make decisions and, and, and take the proper precautions. But that is really the way to do it. And I think that the states so of Florida, we have one of the oldest populations in the country, second oldest population. Uh, And yet our mortality per capita for the whole pandemic is 26th in the country, 25 other states, many of them lockdown states, and many of them have younger populations, and yet they have higher per capita mortality. And so I think that those lockdowns were not evidence-based, and uh, I think that they were mistakes, and we obviously went a different direction. And that's why Ron DeSantis is my leader in the clubhouse to be the Republican nominee for president in 2024 after he wins re-election as Florida's governor in 2022. This is Dan Proft. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. This is the Dan Proft Show. We're pleased to be joined again by our friend KT McFarland. KT, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. You absolutely have the best high-level show of anybody in the country. On uh, the Salem Radio Network. Here we go. 
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Uh, Byron York in his daily memo with the Washington Examiner. Uh, this blurb about uh, perhaps the purge story of the week. The revolution devours all before it. That's the title. And he's talking about uh, what we talked about on this show. San Francisco School Board consummating something that had been under discussion for months, which is to uh, rename schools in the district, stripping uh, the names of people uh, who adorned the school buildings in uh, San Francisco County who were, you know, controversial historical figures like Abraham Lincoln and George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and even California Democrat Senator Di-Fi, Dianne Feinstein, because uh, she once, uh, when she was mayor of San Francisco 35 years ago, put a Confederate flag up in, in uh, City Hall or some such thing. doesn't really matter. Uh, but the question uh, is Byron York right? The revolution devours all before it. Maybe not. For uh, more on that topic and a bit of a philosophical deep dig on that question, pleased to be joined again by C. Bradley Thompson. He is the BB&T research professor in the Department of Political Science at Clemson University and the executive director of the Clemson Institute for the Study of Capitalism. Professor Thompson, thanks for joining us and appreciate it. Hi, Dan. Great to be with you and your audience. Today. Uh, uh, in your um, a series on this topic of uh, the purge, uh, you um, uh, and this is over at your your space at Substack. Um, you distinguish a German nihilism from nihilism generally, and and this one piece in particular, I wanted to start with German nihilism, American style. And and it sort of speaks to the question, the revolution devours all before it. Ultimately, it will be the snake eating, eating its own tail. And um, the uh, basis of what you su- suggest is actually maybe not. And there Maybe it is a little bit more surgical than we would hope to believe and that the political goals really are actually quite focused. Yeah, so... Um... Irving Kristol, the so-called godfather of neoconservatism, once said that the greatest threat to liberal capitalism is not socialism, but rather nihilism. Um, And I think that's true. I think in many ways, the so-called philosophy of nihilism uh, has represented the greatest threat to Western civilization and to the United States over the course of the last 100 years. And nihilism is is a philosophy which essentially eats itself. Nihilism is a philosophy born of hatred and resentment. It's a philosophy which says that all moral values have collapsed, uh, moral structures uh, are crumbling, and in fact, they should. And, and nihilism teaches that we should, we should assist in the destruction of the values that have, had, that have held Western civilization in America together Uh, over the course, uh, not just of the last century, but over the course of many, many centuries. And and um, what what I'm seeing um, in my own research is that this philosophy of nihilism has actually uh, it it has been the staple of the progressive left in this country uh, for at least the last uh, 50 years. And um, distressingly, it is also becoming uh, a philosophy that is being uh, adopted by a very, very small segment uh, of, of of a kind of a new reactionary right uh, in in the United States. 
So it's it's a, it's an ideology that we should all be deeply concerned about because in the end, when you destroy all um, all moral standards and barriers, the question is what's left, what's to be rebuilt. In the case of the left, there's no question in my mind that they are using this philosophy of nihilism as the means toward a particular end, and the end is. Uh, a kind of totalitarianism where the government controls all thought and all action. Um, and I would say on the, on the right, this nihilism is also um, promoting uh, a, kind, a new kind of authoritarianism uh, in the United States that I think has to be equally uh, contested. Uh, when we come back, I want to explore that uh, new kind of authoritarianism you're referencing um, and whether uh, some of those... Uh, you're concerned about on the right are are Straussians or are there really, uh, uh, you know, would be neo authoritarians more with C. Bradley Thompson, Clemson University political science professor and executive director of the Clemson Institute for the study of capitalism. Right after this. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with C. Bradley Thompson, the BBNT research professor in the Department of Political Science at Clemson University and the ED of the Clemson Institute for the Study of Capitalism. And, uh, Professor, you always come up with uh, titles that sound like the uh, names of punk bands. Uh, the last time we spoke, it was uh, Pajama Boy Nietzscheans. Uh, today, it's Bronze Age Pervert and the Fascist New Frontier. Um, we've talked about Bronze Age Pervert, who's actually a person before and has a bit of a following. He was profiled, as you re- uh, referenced in your piece, by Michael Anton over the Claremont Review of Books a couple of years ago. And you've written about him as well. And uh, this is uh, where we left off before the break, talking about um, your concern uh, about some on the right, uh, sort of uh, uh, German-style nihilists on the right, that are uh, giving way to perhaps a, su- a, a new uh, form of or, or new uh, renewed interest in authoritarianism. So you have totalitarianism on the left with the Jacobins, nihilists. Uh, and you have uh, sort of a neo-authoritarianism you describe uh, with some elements on the right. That's right. And um, what what I find most distressing about uh, this new younger generation uh, of primarily young men on the right is first they begin with a rejection of the principles of the American founding. Uh, they argue, and, and by the way, that, that makes them very similar to the people uh, who promote the 1619, 1619 project of the New York Times. They reject the principles of the American founding as no longer relevant for today. And they, they say that in the context of the political world in which we live uh, in 2021, that the values that Americans, conservatives in particular, and libertarians formerly held to be dear uh, are just, they're no longer relevant today. And the left is all about power. And the only thing that can defeat the power of the left is a new kind of power of the right. 
And so they have re rejected the founders' principles, and they are uh, they are flirting, I would say, with an ideology that um, that comes awfully close to something like fascism. So this this gentleman who goes by the pseudonym of Bronze Age Pervert uh, has openly and explicitly in his book Bronze Age Mindset and on his podcast he has argued uh, for uh, for fascism and has his political heroes, if you can imagine, uh, his political heroes are people like Saddam Hussein uh, and Muammar Gaddafi uh, and uh, Eduardo Stroessner, uh, the former dictator of Paraguay, um, who imposed order on their country. So th they see what's happening. These, these young members of the reactionary right, or the, what I call the Nietzschean right, they see quite understandably the moral chaos that exists in the united states today as a result of nihilism they also see the totalitarianism uh that's being promoted by the progressive left and so they think we have to fight power with power and that means that we we need they would argue their side needs to gain power uh in the way you in which you gain power is to imitate the policies uh of 20th century fascism well, it's interesting because so many, and I don't mean to get you know too um, dry for our listeners, but I mean, so many conservatives, libertarians sort of uh, go back to Leo Strauss, and you make reference to this in, in your pieces, and this idea that politics and philosophy are necessarily intertwined. Um, you uh, uh, laud Strauss in, in many ways um, that I think are legitimate, his um, uh, his uh, dismissal of moral relativism and so forth. And so it's one of those things I think people understand as you're sort of getting to. They start from a place where uh, everything is being corrupted and we need to get back to man's essential nature or the rules that should govern uh, a free society that uh, uh, account for man's essential nature. Uh, and uh, so, so the premise is actually uh, perhaps a, a, a compelling one. But but then, yeah, to, for, for how do you go from that place to arguing for, you know, sort of uh, a, uh, a, a platonic republic rather than um, rather than a free society? If you're otherwise someone who is extolling the virtues of uh, of said free society, you're railing against moral relativism and subjugation of people and the corruption of man. Yeah, that's an excellent question. So. In addition to nihilism, they reject um, what is more visibly in this country today uh, and that controls our lives more often is the, is the doctrine of egalitarianism, right? The, the doctrine, the leftist doctrine of egalitarianism says that all men should not only be equal, but effectively that all men should be the same. And, uh, and, and I think the followers of the Bronze Age pervert uh, quite rightly reject uh, the philosophy of egalitarianism, um, but they replace it with something which is um, just as bad. And so they, 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 as you say, they go back to a view of human nature, but it's, it's not the view of human nature as understood by America's founding fathers, who, for instance, would have accepted the principle, obviously all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Uh, and they also and the founders also would have accepted the principle that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. 
Bronze Age pervert and his followers reject those principles. They reject the idea of equality for a doctrine of, of inequality. They reject the idea of rights for a, a different view of justice, which says that power uh, or that might makes right. Um, and uh, and they seek uh, they seek power. So and and this view of human nature that they accept um, is entirely anathema to that of the founding fathers. They abandon reason and rationality for the liberation of man's instincts, his intu- his intuitions, his hormones, his innate blood and desire. They want they want to liberate. Uh, in effect, man's will to power, a Nietzschean term, um, so that um, and that it, it's a kind of um, uh, it's a kind of social Darwinianism uh, where there is no there is no justice except the claim to power. When we come back with uh, Professor Bradley Thompson, Columbus University Political Science Department, I want to ask uh, why should anybody worry about uh, these individuals on the left or the right, they represent a small fraction of the population. Most people have never heard of them. Why all the concern right after this? Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're speaking with Bradley Thompson, poli sci professor at Clemson University. And um, after all of that, uh, you know, deep thinking about uh, Strauss and Nietzsche and nihilism, why at all should I care? What impact does any of this have? Yeah, that's a reasonable question to ask. Um, the reason you should take them seriously is because he is appealing to young people. One of the most important things that conservatives and libertarians who are either Gen Xers or boomers have to take into account is that they're not being listened to anymore. Young people who would have traditionally been conservatives and libertarians are no longer interested in a philosophy of losing, which seems to reign in the conservative libertarian world. These young men and women want to be a part of a movement that is that has a philosophy for winning and that is able to fight. And they view conservatism, Inc. and libertarianism, Inc. as feckless movements that ultimately redound to a kind of cowardice. They're just not willing to fight. So that's my biggest concern is that these these ideas are very popular with with young men uh, and some women uh, who are in their 20s and early 30s. And that's always where the political action is long term. Right. You have to concern. You have to be concerned about the education of our young people. And if our if the education of our young people is being corrupted by false ideas, then that seems to me is always a cause of concern. Yeah, I think that's a good answer. I would also add, too, I mean, if when people go around, uh, uh, you know, so it's almost like Harvard Lampoon quality, you know, calling themselves Straussians and then espousing some of the things that the Bronze Age pervert is espousing, it'd be good if uh, some people would be able to call them on it because Strauss is an important figure in Western thought. 
and uh, and he spawned a bunch of other important figures in Western thought. You mentioned some of them in your piece. I mean, Harry Jaffa, who wrote to me the definitive book on Lincoln, The New Birth of Freedom, and Alan Bloom, who wrote The Closing of the American Mind. I mean, if you're you if you want to be a serious person and think about the big things seriously, uh, then you need to be able to distinguish, as you said, the hucksters from those who have given serious people serious thought. Without question, Leo Strauss is one of the two or three greatest political philosophers of the 20th century uh, who educated several generations uh, of America's uh, most thoughtful and serious uh, uh, political thinkers, particularly uh, conservative, neoconservative, even a few libertarian thinkers. Uh, And Strauss's thought in no way should be connected uh, to to the ideas uh, of you know uh, uh, of, of someone who goes by the name of Bronze Age pervert. Right, sort of. Even if that. you knew nothing about Strauss, you know, was, you know, was that should be the default position by just the handle that's used. Yeah, right. Uh, Professor C. Bradley Thompson, the BBT and research, uh, the BBT. And T research professor in the Department of Poli Sci at Clemson, executive director of the Clemson Institute for the Study of Capitalism. Professor, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Dan, thank you so much. Have a good day. Take care. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. A couple of data points. Across the country, more than half of students, 53%, do not have access to regular in-person learning, instead receiving instruction entirely remotely, according to Education Next survey. Also, the disparity. 24% of children in traditional public schools attend school in person. 60% of those in private schools do so. And I would say the 60% in private schools is still a shame. That is... That should be 100 percent. I don't know what 40 percent of those private schools are doing. And uh, we know I mean, we've known since last spring there is piles of research almost as high as the research uh, as to the safety of kids being in school, as to uh, the you know, relative invulnerability that kids have to the virus, that you're putting kids far behind with this remote learning. In addition to, oh, by the way. Not just putting them years behind in their intellectual development and their skill development in subjects like reading and math, but also remember once upon a time before COVID when we were very concerned about the amount of screen time for kids? So, again, this has been a theme on this show. Yes, I understand why parents are beating the drums for the public school systems to reopen, even the terrible ones, because this is what they know right now. But some long-term or even medium-term thinking should go into this, particularly with scholarship programs that provide opportunities to get your child into a better educational setting so you never have to worry about this again, nor will you have to worry about your kid being sent to a totalitarian re-education camp to come out to be a member of Antifa. There's also what actually happens inside the walls when the kids are back inside the walls. There are opportunities and there are parents taking initiative Two uh, parents in a Pennsylvania suburb fed up with not being able to keep their children physically in school full time uh, are doing one of these essentially 
parental pods. Stacy Wormsley is a mom with two boys with special needs in Westchester, Pennsylvania, 35 miles west of Philadelphia. Both my children have struggled with pandemic learning. They do not like being behind a screen. It's stressful. It's not natural. It isn't suited to how they learn. Last spring was horrible, uh, adds Beth Ann Rosica, another Westchester mother of two boys. My kids were miserable and unhappy. They hated doing online learning. It was an absolute catastrophe in our house. Meltdowns every day. And so they have uh, taken it upon themselves to create a learning environment in the neighborhood with other parents and their kids, just as we've heard across the country. You know, you are not a victim of your circumstance. There are things that you can do. Maybe difficult. They may not be optimal. May not be what you had in mind going into 2020. But it's what the landscape provides now, and you want the best possible environment for the best possible outcomes for your kids. So let's talk about what is possible. And to help us do that, we're pleased to be joined by Kate Hardiman. She is a opinion columnist of the Washington Examiner. She's a former Chicago high school teacher at uh, Holy Trinity, co-author of Unshackled, Freeing America's K-12 through Education System. Kate, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So um, I like this line in a piece that you co-authored, I should say, including about your book, with Clint Bolick, who's fantastic. Imagine the transformation of K-12 through education if students were the primary source of public school funding rather than, say, in Illinois, property taxes. Yes, that is a huge part of how we think the model should change. You know, at its core, what that really means is more school choice. It continues to be a bit baffling to me how information doesn't get down to the parental level because, I mean, this is not a secret that minority families, their kids in Chicago, in New York, in L.A., who are not in uh, one of the charter schools that have been proven successful or a private school that has a track record of success that are relegated to those neighborhood schools that have failed students for generations. Remarkable to me, they don't understand what's happening or are unaware of the alternatives that are particularly focused on them to change the circumstances for their child? Or or is it they're aware of it, but the resources are just not substantial enough to enable them to make the move? I I don't want to ascribe blame, but but, but it's it's some combination uh, to me of awareness or reaching critical mass in terms of resources. What's your handle on it? I think it's a combination of both. I mean, Although I would say there is awareness because we do see right parents across the country lying about their zip code to get their kid into a better school district. So they certainly have awareness that their public school, you know, isn't serving their child and they're even willing to break the law to fix that situation. From the standpoint of political capital, right, often in these communities, they are, the public schools are controlled by unions. And that's a huge issue because those unions have more political capital and more money to fund politicians than these parents ever will have. Um, so they're really just being held hostage uh, by their local union. And yeah, know, but, yeah, yeah, but the problem is a great percentage of those residents identify with their captors. It, well, true. However, we're seeing that school choice is really becoming more of a bipartisan issue. And we discussed this a little bit in the book, but it's an interesting issue because it is shifting political coalitions. And what we saw in the in the Florida gubernatorial election a few years ago is that an African-American Democrat was defeated. And, you know, there was a critical mass of African-American women who voted for the Republicans. And people kind of looked at this and said, this is a school choice effect. Yeah, same thing in Arizona with Ducey's reelection and Latino voters. You're absolutely right. Exactly. I, I exactly. wonder. I wonder that you know we have some great people in the school choice movement, including from minority communities that are success stories, great organizations. But I wonder if we need like a quote unquote crazy Joe Clark 
And and I, I was thinking about him because our friend here, friend of the show, Bob Woodson, who is uh, one of those uh, leaders for 50 years that has been so instrumental in changing the way at least some people think about poverty, about opportunity, about everything. He uh, wrote a column about Joe Clark on the occasion of his passing. He, he passed away last month. For people remember, lean on me. Morgan Freeman played Joe Clark, the Philadelphia principal with, uh, you know, the bat and the Emphasis on discipline, to say it lightly. But the point of Joe Clark was he was this charismatic figure who lived the life of coming from being a welfare boy from Newark, as he called himself, to being on the cover of Time magazine because of what he was able to do at that high school. And I understand that not everybody is going to be Joe Clark and not everybody has the leadership skills or the the innate sense of and courage to do what he did. But it just doesn't seem like as much as we we try to be too reasonable, it seems to me, about allowing this status quo to continue. We've got great people, great intellects, people writing big checks, people making contributions. We try to be reasonable. The teachers unions are this and parents are this. It, it seems to me we almost have to have somebody like Joe Clark, you know, running around batting people upside the head rhetorically to, to wake people up to the sense of urgency about what is happening K through 12 education and now it seems to be the best opportunity that we've had in generations. Yeah, I totally agree. And I mean, we're heading into what will promise to be a massive standoff between the new Democratic administration and the union, because the administration is echoing the science that, as you say, we've known for eight months that schools are not super spreaders, that the unions are pushing back and they're saying, no, we're still not going. So I agree with you that the timing has never been better to sound this alarm. So since you were in the Catholic school system here, part of the Arch, uh, around the country you have uh, private schools, Catholic schools uh, loaded to the gills. Here we uh, just announced the closure of four schools. You know, how do we get sort of the energy and the attention that uh, uh, a plucky band of uh, Redditors got by taking on the hedge fund billionaires? How do we have that moment in the school choice movement, I guess, is what I'm trying to figure out. Yeah, I mean, well, first I'll say that the closure of Catholic schools absolutely breaks my heart. Where those schools close are, you know, in the neighborhoods that need them most. That's really just a, a tragedy. And if I could add, but sorry to interject, but if I could add, a failure of the Chicago Archdiocese. That's a failure. That's a failure of leadership, especially in these times, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if I am so quick to put the blame on the Arch. I mean, I think it's because a lot of families, I chalk it up to a lack of school choice. If you're a family and your financial situation has changed due to COVID and you were barely scraping together, you know, a thousand bucks for your kids to, to go to a Catholic school and then you lose that income. I don't know, you know, as a parent, that's a really tough choice. So I I think it's more of an economic failure and, you know, the issues that we've done. Well, (laughs) self-inflicted wounds to our economy. Well, and and, and how about self-inflicted wounds to the church and to the archdiocese? Maybe if we weren't uh, sheltering predators and having to pay out uh, uh, nine and ten figure judgments, we could have more money to provide scholarships to do the mission of the Catholic Church and, and people of the Catholic faith, not to mention if we weren't spending our time talking about $15 minimum wages and immigration policy and doing the social justice song and dance, maybe we could focus on things like educating children in a way that we don't in Chicago under Supich in particular. I mean, let's just be real frank about it. Yeah, I mean, I think the church could do a much better job about taking on school choice as a core issue. This is going to become much more important to as public schools become controlled by, you know, leftist curriculum. She is Katie Hardiman, uh, Kate Hardiman, excuse me, opinion columnist, Washington Examiner, former Chicago high school teacher at the Holy Trinity, as we were discussing, co-author of the book, Unshackled, Freeing America's K-12 Education System. Kate, thanks for joining us. Good luck with the book. Thanks for having me.
This portion is sponsored by the American Federation for Children, the nation's largest school choice advocacy organization, helping every family choose the best K-12 education for their children. Find them on social media at School Choice Now. That's at School Choice Now. Sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Uh, I wanted to go back to a bit of a discussion on uh, all things pandemic related, but specifically the uh, impacts of the lockdown policies talked a little bit earlier in the show about Ron DeSantis versus Cuomo versus Pritzker versus Newsom, what's happening in Florida versus, for example, the lockdown states just as a perhaps the starkest compare contrast between light touch states of substantial size and diversity compared to lockdown states of substantial size and diversity. Well, there's something else, too, that's becoming um, more talked about. It's sad that it's taken this long. You heard our interview last week on this show with Chris Buckner, parent of a father of a young man, standout athlete and student in suburban Chicago who uh, committed suicide. And the mental health impacts on kids, uh, particularly uh, uh, when we, we know so much about this, uh, we actually were talking about what before COVID-19 when it came to kids and their mental health in the digital age. Too much screen time. Now that's not even a conversation piece. That's of no concern to the teachers unions that are still holding up these kids, as uh, we uh, sort of alluded to with uh, Kate Hardiman before the break. But it's more than that. It's just a, a lack of recognition in terms of what social isolation does to young people and the, the consequences that the impacts that cannot be remedied necessarily always addressed by the parents, no matter if they do everything right and no matter no matter what they do, frankly. It's remarkable to me that so many of these adults either don't remember or don't care to remember how important friends were growing up in those formative years in K through 12, particularly for teenagers, and how, you know, sometimes I'll listen to what my friend has to say when I won't listen to what my mom or dad has to say. And how important is that when somebody is on the verge of doing something so destructive? Well, this brings us to an interview that Harris Faulkner did yesterday over at Fox News with an Illinois woman named Lisa Mara Moore, whose son Trevor, senior in high school, headed the University of Illinois, killed himself. And listen to what Miss Moore had to say. My son died because of COVID isolation. I believe that 100%. That, that it changed Trevor to who, from who he was to the person that did this. I tell parents, helicopter the heck out of your kids. Watch them. Watch for any change, any slight change in their behavior. Make opportunities for them to see their friends. Do whatever you have to. I don't want any other mother or father or parent or sibling to have to go through this. It's horrific. Laura Moore, I am so, so sad and and sorry for what you have been through with the loss of your beautiful child. Harris Faulkner handled that very well. Very tough situation, tough interview. Uh, but it's important. It's important that we hear from parents like Moore, parents like Buckner, um, and also from parents who um, know that Miss Moore is right, Mr. Buckner is right, but are afraid to speak out. You know, why won't people who know better speak to better, demand better? Sort of a 
a rolling uh, frustration. And I understand it's not easy, and I understand it's a lot easier for me behind a microphone with the backing of a company that actually believes in a free society and free speech and free thought uh, as the foundation of that free society to say these things. But uh, nonetheless, you know, you're sort of in a pick-your-poison choice, aren't you? You can um, say nothing. You can go along with something you know is wrong, and uh, your child will suffer as a result. And also, frankly, not to be too hard on people, but you're not providing a particularly compelling example for your child, are you? I know it's right, but uh, when you know what's right and something's wrong, you just sit quietly by because there could be repercussions. Or you stand up and, yeah, you risk uh, maybe something professionally happening to you because of the nature of culture today. Uh, maybe uh, retribution from your kid's teacher on your kid in some way academically, although are they even grading anymore in the during the pandemic? Are they just passing kids through as they continue to fall further and further behind in terms of their intellectual development and skill development in uh, so many subjects? Well, I thought this was uh, an interesting discussion. There was a, a, a Zoom press conference that was posted online. It was made public by a, a group in Chicago called Chicago Unheard. You know, Chicago is I use these examples not just because it's where I live, but it's because Chicago is the bad example. I mean, it's right at the top of the list of the bad examples. Only Chicago and California, uh, Miss Moore mentioned winter sports. Only Chicago and California couldn't figure out a schedule for winter sports. They were the last two states uh, finally announced this week. Uh, Illinois did. Last two states. 48 other states figured it out. But Chicago and uh, but, uh, I should say Illinois and California, they're the enlightened ones. They're the ones uh, operating out of an abundance of caution. They're the ones saving lives. It's ridiculous. And so, of course, as many people probably know, the Chicago Teachers Union, along with like New York Teachers Union and a few others, San Francisco, L.A., keeping the school shut down. The evidence doesn't matter. The impact doesn't matter. This is uh, a exhibition of power and a demonstration of who's in control of the schools. And so when you know the situation is not optimal for your kid, why stand up? by and allow it to occur. Well, listen to this group. Chicago Unheard is the name of the group. And uh, they self-described this as a, a group of uh, black and brown parents. And this is what they had to say in, in talking amongst themselves, but being made public by the local Fox, Fox affiliate here. What we're seeing is um, those of us that have been on the ground organizing, trying to get the black and brown community to speak up about their needs. We don't want to. And so what do you guys think about that? So we're saying that we want a voice in these decisions, but when, op when these opportunities present themselves, we're kind of taking a stand back, maybe because we're tired, maybe because we don't trust the union or the district. Like, what do you guys think it is that keeps us quiet and away from the decision-making table? Fear. Tell us about Retaliation. That. One word, fear. Dive into that a little bit. You said fear, retaliation. Vanessa, tell me about that. Tell us about that. Yeah, I, I absolutely feel fear of retaliation from my my children's teachers, from the, the principal at the school. Um, it's been made very clear to me that those people within that building do not really want to return. Fear of retaliation, I understand it. I believe that it's very real. The question is, do you ever make a good decision when it's a decision rooted in fear or retaliation? Giving in to fear and, and the threat of retaliation. Do you normally make a good decision, do you think? Uh, borrowing from C.S. Lewis, this... Um, great riff he had uh, writing in 1948 about uh, living in an atomic age. You know, back then it was the threat of, you know, uh, the atomic bomb wiping out humanity. 
where I uh, reference uh, the bomb, just uh, replace that with COVID and see if this doesn't ring true to you. This is the first point to be made, and the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we are all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things, praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint and a game of darts, not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies. A microbe can do that. But they need not dominate our minds. Yeah. And, you know, the opportunity, I think, is for people when you have people, you know, genuinely say, I'm, I'm afraid this is where people who are already speaking out, who are not riddled with fear, need to extend a hand and bring people along who know what the correct action to be taken is. But, uh, you know, need the uh, solidarity to to join in and be part of advancing that correct action, because uh, as Milton Friedman observed, politics, the art of getting the wrong people to do the right thing. And that requires constant pressure. The teachers unions understand that. It's time more parents did as well. This is Dan Proff. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show, uh, talking about uh, the purge and uh, the accusations of white supremacy lurking around uh, every corner by those in all of the uh, elite centers in the West, academia, for a long time, media, now, frankly, the halls of power in D.C., arts and entertainment, more so than ever in the sports world, which, is, of course, uh, I would include in arts and entertainment, but often people don't. So I wanted to make them an explicit category unto themselves. And uh, the question is, you know, the Ibram Kendi's and the Robin D'Angelo's and the others that we've talked about, is this uh, just a hustle for their professional advancement and pecuniary interests? Or is there something more dastardly afoot? And even if it's just about uh, the money, uh, is it something that they can control so that whether they were just thinking about it as a moneymaker, it uh, doesn't mean that it can't spiral into something much more destructive to society more generally. To help us with that question or those questions, really, we're pleased to be joined by Samantha Maitra, doctoral scholar at the University of Nottingham School of Politics and International Relations. Samantha Maitra, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Uh, so you wrote this piece, uh, The Dark Days of Higher Education are here over at nationalinterest.org. And, and you explore this question a little bit based on some of the more recent examples of the sort of identitarian silliness on college campuses with getting rid of Chaucer after getting rid of Shakespeare and so on and so forth. And the question is, does the line between a professional hustle and something more ideological, does it even does it exist, number one, and does it matter if it does exist? It's a combination of both factors. In, on, on one hand, you're right, there are a certain amount of ideological people who are in every discipline in academia. I mean, from the 90s onwards, this group of people kind of like, you know, had this interdisciplinary studies, which mixed normal disciplines with their own kind of ideological uh, stuff. And then they got into every single department and then they started controlling the funding, the scholarship, the new students' interactions, new PhDs, self-referential journals. 
And that is one of the way of how they kind of like got control of these disciplines. On the other hand, universities in both the United Kingdom and the United States function in a normal bureaucratic way. One of the research that we did for Martin Center, for example, found out that there has been a 221% rise in administration at universities compared to a 10% rise in faculty. And that is an interesting factor because at the end of the day, bureaucracy functions in a very bureaucratic way. So when they see all these new kind of doctrinal ideas, they have this kind of corporatist outlook. This is what sells. This is what the students want. You know, this is what a consumerist approach to what education would look like. That mixed up with these certain ideological professoriates at universities is why we are where we are. Like, it's a combination of both of those factors. Right. So, I mean, it it could start out as just very... um a moral in perspective this is you know the you know, what becomes the identitarian nomenclatura is just a bunch of people trying to create uh, some well-paying jobs and make sure they stay ensconced in those jobs and so on and so forth and then it becomes a bit of an echo chamber but but it's wonderful because everybody thinks the same way and everybody gets along and yeah. they just sort of a self-deal yeah. if you allow me to self-deal then I'll allow you to self-deal and we'll just this just goes yeah. on but the problem is I mean but ultimately it seems to me this metastasizes into a sort of club And we've seen this uh, in states like my home state of Illinois, where you have sort of an institutionalized bureaucracy that self deals uh, at the expense of a population that's not represented at the table. And ultimately, you destroy the um, foundations of the society. And so that's what we're seeing happen in these cultural and educational institutions as well. One of the reasons this happens is because normal people don't really have a say. Imagine a state-funded university or a public-funded university. Now, universities functions usually about, you know, it, it's a hierarchical flow of knowledge. Like, it goes from the top to the bottom. But on the other hand, it's also tax-funded. I mean, we cannot imagine homeopathy, for example, or craniometry or any of those kind of pseudoscientific nonsense to be taught at public-funded universities, which are tax-funded, which are paid by you and I. But on the other hand, because these disciplines like critical race theory, for example, is much popular in the corporate sector. And there is this section of, you know, politicians and, uh, and ideologues at universities who are promoting these things. It's easier for them to kind of bypass the public opinion. I mean, if you ask the general public, they don't really have a say, as you pointed out. You know, I mean, most of the people who are toppling statues, for example, will be in a minority compared to the, you know, I mean, most of the most Americans, I would, I'm guessing, would not want to topple a statue of Lincoln, for example. Most British certainly don't want to topple a statue of Churchill. But that is, you know, it, it's a lopsided issue because, you know, when, when you check academia, they have this minority uh, concerns which are kind of like elevated uh, in a way because of the system, because of the bureaucrat, because of the mix of this bureaucracy and ideology. And that is creating a problem. The normal people don't really have a say on these things. Uh, when we come back with Sumantra... Maitra, I want to talk about uh, another piece that you penned, uh, this about uh, the consequences of the so-called tech lash, the backlash against big tech. We'll uh, start there. Samantha Maitra, doctoral scholar at the University of Nottingham School of Politics and International Relations. We'll be right back. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're pleased to be joined by Samantra Maitra. He's a doctoral scholar at the University of Nottingham School of Politics and International Relations. Before the break, 
We were talking about uh, the state of affairs in higher education. I want to turn our attention now to uh, big tech, particularly the social media platforms, and, and this piece that you penned at The Federalist about the global consequences of the so-called tech lash. And um, I, I wonder what they will be, a backlash against big tech, because you write, uh, uh, and, and borrowing from uh, another scholar, that Twitter banned Trump because it could, and that's all there is to it, that this is about uh, Twitter and uh, the other big tech companies not being afraid of conservatives, but uh, they are afraid of the Jacobin left. They are afraid of totalitarian governments where they uh, make their in, in countries where they make a lot of money like China. And so they do pay attention right. to that. But if if uh, they don't care about those they're purging, then why will there be a backlash or a tech lash of any significance? Two things to keep in mind here. First of all, the tech companies that we see, they operate not like normal companies in a free market. They operate as feudal powers in, a, in, a, in, a, in an oligarchy. So, you know, you have like a handful of companies which control every single aspect of your life, what you choose to buy, where you're buying tickets, what you, you know, share your data. Um, all of these things can be controlled. And naturally, it can lead to a situation where your choices will be manipulated by these companies. Now, if, if one studies the history of, you know, a big company, East India Company, for example, uh, at, at one point of time, the company interests kind of like uh, gets clashed with the interests of the sovereign state. You know, we still, for good or for bad, live in a system where the nation state is supreme. Now, uh, one of the things to keep in mind is all these companies, they don't really fear the conservatives. Part of the reason is because of conservative dogma. Conservatives don't like to use governmental power to crack down. And these companies, like any other feudal system in history, are afraid of power. That is the same logic, which is one of the reasons why they're afraid of someone protesting in Antifa, for example. They can protest in front of their, uh, their offices or someone in Chuck in China, which is a totalitarian system, they are not going to like, you know, they are not going to be like conservatives in the West, in the UK or US, saying, hey, we are not going to use government power to break these monopolies. They are going to break the monopolies. And because these companies are like feudal entities, they're afraid of that power. So uh, the thing that I pointed out in that, in that particular essay, from what I remember, I wrote like it was a month back, uh, was that the system, which is currently placed in US and UK, where these companies can dictate policies to, uh, to the conservatives will not happen in other systems. India will not allow that. China will not allow that. Russia is obviously not going to allow that. So at one point of time, we are going to see the historical norm of uh, big companies, tech companies or big feudal entities clashing with the sovereign state. And that is what we are going to see. If, they can, if these companies can stop the U.S. president from speaking, imagine the amount of power they buy. I mean, tomorrow, if they say Boris Johnson is a fascist, or Emmanuel Macron, France, the fascist, and they stop, you know, communication of these uh, leaders, then that is obviously not how, what France or the United Kingdom would agree to. So eventually, one can plausibly argue that there might, there might be a possibility of the sovereign state coming in clash with these companies, and that's something which we need to be cognizant about. Well, so that's a, a bit of a trick bag from conservative, for conservatives you're describing. On the one hand, uh, the only uh, thing that these companies respond to is the threat of state power. On the other hand, Conservatives would have to stop being conservative if they were going to uh, use what is available to them, were they in power, to uh, uh, impose it on those tech companies. Uh, You know, do you want to give up who you are in order to accomplish an end that you 
you seek. I mean, Not necessarily. Right. I, I, I want to I clarify a few things here. First of all, uh, this idea that free market can uh, determine politics is a modern conservative idea. A lot of, you know, old conservatives, for example, never believed that. They believed in state power. Benjamin Disraeli in the, in the Victorian England, for example, who's one of the noted conservative philosophers. But even within the free market framework, even without using state power, conservatives can still use... Uh, um, uh, you know, a kind of like the free market forces and competition. Yes. To stop, you know, one doesn't need to crack down and with with, with a kind of like totalitarian intensity against these companies, rather than you know pushing up other competition to uh, to face these companies. For example, um, I think that's I think that's one of the things that I mean. Okay, so take an example of the state laws that's happening in North Carolina uh, at the universities where. Uh, all they're doing is legislating and ensuring uh, freedom of speech at the universities. So something like that can happen. Like in Poland, for example, uh, the conservative government legislated that, no, we are not going to affect the tech companies, but what we are going to do is we are going to make them liable for lawsuits if they censor speech. So that's something which conservatives can do without the government crackdown. It doesn't mean that you need to be in China, for example, you could do a lot of things without being totalitarian. I think those are the things which one needs to you know, think about. So uh, you have this interesting um, metaphor in your piece. You, you write the tech lashing censoring of the president, a bunch of conservatives, is similar to the king realizing during Magna Carta that it's the feudal lords who hold real power, not him. Yeah. So, you know, so so we're at Runnymede, uh, our, our 21st century version of Runnymede. So who's King John and uh, and who are, uh, you know, who are those that are uh, establishing uh, the rights under the Magna Carta? And I that, think I think uh, well, well, it was metaphorical, as you mentioned, yeah. but uh, to, to, to take it further from there, I think the idea is uh Deleting of Trump's account from Twitter was kind of like a, a, a marking point, which would go down in history. I think that was the first time, and there was a research that came out, I, I, I don't exactly remember, but it recently came out in the Royal Institute of International Affairs saying that, hey, this was probably something which was gone too far. Um, if you have Amazon, if you have Google, Twitter, Facebook, Apple, five companies, uh, which are the five biggest companies which can decide literally whether you can get credit cards or not, uh, depending on your social media quotes, I think those are like you know the, the modern version of feudal lords. Now, whether and 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 the and the deletion of Trump's Twitter account was kind of like a a, a red line, so to speak, uh, showing that how these companies have so much power. Whether you know that would lead to some kind of like understanding of in the conservatives about doing something about it, or they're just going to keep on talking about it is not something which I can predict. I mean, obviously, but 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 that is that is a red line. And these are the companies which are kind of like a modern version of the of the feudal lords, I suppose. He is Samantha Maitra, doctoral scholar at the University of Nottingham School of Politics and International Relations. Thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks for your time. Take care. Show.com.
Welcome back to the show to close out the week since we've uh, spent a good deal of time, particularly the last couple of days, talking about the Reddit renegades and the hedge fund billionaires. Revisiting a study from about a decade ago that uh, suggested that uh, money can buy happiness only to a certain income level and that the residual increase in happiness above it was $75,000 a year is negligible. This was um, a study done by a Nobel Prize winning economist. Again, happiness generated as a result of your financial situation, it plateaus above 75000 a year. Well, there's been a new look at this, and maybe it's a little bit more complex than that, and maybe that the way that study was characterized and reported by the dum-dums in the media was not as nuanced as it should have been. Matt Killingsworth is a senior fellow at the Wharton School for Business at the University of Pennsylvania. He looked at uh, 1.7 million samples pulled from more than 33,000 employed adults in the United States, used an app he designed called Track Your Happiness. The way it works is people get pinged at random moments as they go about their daily lives, he explained. And then I asked them some questions about their experience just before that moment, how they feel, what they're doing, and a variety of other things. And he tries to identify and quantify what their sort of experienced well-being, as he terms it, is in the moment. You know, this is a difficult thing to quantify and to start to draw lines because it's so subjective. But his study, like actually the study from a decade earlier, showed that evaluative well-being increased as income increased even beyond that $75,000 mark. Killingsworth said, you know, we're finding similar patterns for evaluative well-being and similar patterns in a variety of ways in the data. There's actually a lot of consistency that happiness doesn't plateau at the $75,000 mark, that experiencing well-being just keeps increasing along the same trend lines. The nice way to look at $75,000 threshold is if I could just get to some level income, I can stop worrying about money. That's kind of attractive, but $75,000 is not a key threshold. And he goes on to say, but here's the larger takeaway. What does life look like for someone who doesn't earn a lot but says money isn't important? He said, I don't have a great answer for that. I don't know, but I know that they're there and I know they're enjoying life just about as much as similar people who earn a lot more. One thing universally true against all subjects, anyone who conflated money with personal success was miserable. Killingsworth saying it's especially bad if you don't earn much money, but there doesn't seem to be any point where conflating personal success with your financial outcome is a good thing. No point in which that is a good thing, conflating Uh, My definition of my personal success with how much money I'm making, having more money is good, but being fixated on it and using it to define your self-worth is probably not such a great idea. So, you know, all the things that uh, you learned in grade school turn out to be true, that uh, your job is not who you are and the amount of money you make doesn't make you better than somebody else or doesn't give you necessarily a more fulfilling life than somebody else. The substance of what you're doing, regardless of what the... uh, market dictates you're paid is um, uh, the probably more enduring influencer on your experienced well-being, to borrow the phrase. Thank you for joining us for another edition of and week of the Dan Prof Show. We do appreciate it. Please continue to stay informed so you can act rationally and be courageous and we can live free and have a great weekend. This is the Dan Proft Show.